All right. So last we left off in our lesson, uh, before we got to define these terms. So if you have last week's sheet, if you want thoughts as to what these definitions are, go ahead and give those to you now. Uh, bibliology. What do you think bibliology is the study of? Bible. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Bible. Just a, a long eye on that one. Bible. There you go. Um, theology proper. Now that's a funny term. What do you think that one's the study of? Theology proper. Yeah, yeah, so that's the study of God generally in reference to the Trinity, in reference to God's attributes. That's what theology proper is. And so we're looking at uh, the Godhead, analyzing the Godhead from that perspective. Welcome. Put your sheet there and a pen if you need one. Got you all set there, Travis. Now, this one's really tough. Christology. What's that the study of? Correct. <laughs> you and those eyes. Again, a long eye. Christ. Christ. Study of Christ. Yeah, that's it. Um, pneumatology. Error. Yeah, very good. Error. Remember, we get pneumatics from, right, is the Greek word for wind, which is also the Greek word for spirit. It's the pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology. Anthropology. It's not just a store in the mall, Travis. Anthropology. What is anthropology? <laughs> man. Study of man. Anthropos, the Greek word for mankind. Anthropology. Okay, now that, that column's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Let's go to the next column. Soteriology. Soter. Salvation. Good. Soteres comes from the Greek word meaning salvation. Sozo is the verb that means I save. Soter, soteriology. Ecclesiology. If you think of the book Ecclesiastes, it won't help you at all. <laughs> ecclesiology, the study of the church. Good, the study of the church. That's what ecclesiology is. The Greek word ekklesia is the word for assembly or church, congregation, the study of the church. And in that study, that's when we get into church government um, and things of that nature. Uh, the, what, what makes a church? So, for instance, some guy who has a YouTube channel who's got 4,000 subscribers and every Sunday morning he preaches, is that a church? Well, we'll talk about that in ecclesiology, okay? Eschatology. End times. End times. Eschatos, the word for the end. Eschatology is the end times. Now, these last two are really hard. Angelology and Israelology. What could those be about? <laughs> the study of angels, the study of Israel. All right, that's what those two words mean. The study of angels. And we're going to give you a definition for an, an angel. I learned this definition in Bible college. Angels are immaterial spirit beings created by God and named with a purpose. I've never forgotten that definition. Uh, hopefully we can pound it into your brain too. Okay, So that's where we're going in this study. Last week was just an introduction, defining doctrine, defining theology. And this is where we're going. This is going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to go through, as you can imagine. But I hope you enjoy it. My... Probably my favorite thing in the world to do in ministry is to teach theology. I just love it. So, uh, thank you for being here and being students. Thank you for teaching us. You're welcome. Now we got pleasantries out of the way. Uh, today, 
it's the first lesson in bibliology, and we're going to talk about the first two of five words that you need. Five words that you need, and today we're going to talk about the first two, which are inspiration and inerrancy. You got to have those words figured out, locked down, in this day and age especially. Next week, we're going to look at sufficiency, hermeneutics, and exegesis. Uh, you need to know what all five of these words mean because uh, this is how we interact with the scriptures. Uh, we, we all come to the Bible with assumptions because you've been a Christian for some time. You're not, this isn't day one of being a Christian. Uh, some of you have been Christians for decades. And you have assumptions about the Bible, and you have assumptions about how to read the Bible. You have assumptions about everything concerning the Bible. I've got them, you've got them, we all got them. Well, what we want to do is examine those assumptions and see if they are in accord with sound teaching. So today we're going to talk about these first two words, inspiration and inerrancy. And if you've got these two words down, you are going to just be so much farther along than so many others who claim to be Christians um, and we're seeing the effects of that, sadly. I mean, knowing those two words should be baseline about what it means to be a Christian. But so many people have lost the understanding of inspiration. If the average American Christian were to ask, how do we get the Bible? Who knows what kind of answer you'll get, right? And if the answer doesn't start with God's authority, God's will, God's revelation, and the, the end result being the Bible is the word of God then where do we get our doctrine? Where do we get our theology? How do we understand who we are? How do we understand who God is? Okay, very important. Lots at stake. Hi, Logan. We got sheets right up here on the table. Uh, you can follow along. Inspiration and inerrancy are the words we're going to cover today. So let's talk about some inspirational quotes. These are quotes from theologians about the doctrine of inspiration. Okay, these aren't uh, bumper stickers or Facebook posts. <laughs> John Frame says, the inspiration of Scripture is a divine act, creating an identity between a divine word and a human word. Wow. Okay. Take on that one for a few hours, right? Um, Charles Ryrie, God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That one's easier to understand. There's just more words on that one. Okay, go to the next one. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. Okay, kind of see where we're going. Wayne Gruden. All of the words in the Bible are God's words. I like that one. All of the words in the Bible are God's words. Maybe that's why we call it God's word. That could be. That could be. But how easy is it to just say that and to not think about what that means? So let's give a, let's get a definition. You guys got your sheets out, got your pens out. Here we go. Inspiration of Scripture is the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. Inspiration of Scripture is the doctrine of God's intervention into history with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. Okay, so there's a lot, lot going on, a lot of prepositional phrases there uh, in that statement. 
But each part is critical. We believe that Scripture is God's intervention. We don't believe it's man's doing. We don't believe that man did something and then God said, yeah, I can work with that. We believe that this is all God. From the beginning through the end, it's all God when it comes to getting Scripture into man's hands. And it's through the written word. They wrote it down. God's means of communicating to the world is the written word. Okay, big deal. With the view, why did he do it? Well, his view in doing this was to offer mankind truth. He selected human authors to reveal truth. And I've said this from the pulpit a few times lately, how, you know, if you've got a good doctrine of God, you understand that God knows all things. But has he revealed to us all things? No. No. He's revealed to us all things that he wanted to reveal to us. But that's it. And thank God was a huge heart about every hair on every human's head. We know this much. But it's exactly what God wants us to know. By way of human authors, we've been uh, given truth. Now, let me ask you, you let me hear you articulate in your own words, what's at stake with this? If this is off, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, what's at stake? Jerry, did you have a truth? You're just making things up apart from that. Guessing. Yeah. Whatever. Yes, definitely. If, If we have our doctrine of inspiration off, we are completely relegated to speculation, aren't we? We can only speculate as to what is true. We can only speculate as to who God is like and what, what our problems are. We can only speculate. But if we believe that God has given us his word and it's for us, it's clear for us, then we have truth. What else? False describe error, error understanding to God is blasphemous. Good. Yeah, so um, in addition to that, we start looking at the Bible and critiquing the Bible as if it's any other document. And in a person's mind, if that person doesn't think it's from God, if that person thinks, well, that's just man's thoughts, there's nothing wrong with critiquing it. But like Tyler just said, if those are God's words, then it's blasphemous to critique it. And do you guys remember what the uh, punishment was for blasphemy in the Old Testament? Death. God takes blasphemy very seriously. And if you're blaspheming God's nature, God's words, God's revelation, it's a very serious sin. Other thoughts about what's at stake? We believe to in all aspects of error and against what God has designed mm-hmm. and put down. Because if you do one assumption, that one assumption leads to another. Yeah. Another and another, so just about all aspects are going to get covered. Yes. Error only compounds. It doesn't ever self-correct. It just keeps getting more and more erroneous. Rex? Yeah, our eternity is at stake. Yeah. How do we know the way of salvation? Because in our gospel presentations, you don't have to have a Bible open pointing to the Word of God. It helps, and it's good. But you don't have to. But what you should be saying should be based on the Word of God. Right? And if we're speaking something saying this is how you're saved and God's word isn't backing it up, what are we doing? We're just sharing our own opinions at that point. All right? Here's a longer quote from MacArthur and Mayhew in their book, Biblical Doctrine. The doctrine of Scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source for all Christian truth. 
Scripture repeatedly claims to be the word of God. The prophets appealed to it as the foundation for God's promises and judgments. Christ and his apostles based the whole of Christian doctrine on the scriptures. If we lose the Bible, we lose everything. There is no Christian doctrine. There is no Christianity if we lose the Bible. Right? Because at that point, we're all defining it however we want to define it. And there is no unity. There's no foundation. We just have a bunch of two-by-four stud walls that are just thrown all over the place because there's no foundation anymore. The Bible is our foundation. The Word of God is the foundation. Okay? More thoughts on inspiration? Our goal is to discover what the Bible has to say about itself, not to impose a preconceived definition into our theology. So when it comes to understanding what Scripture is, what's the most authoritative source we could turn to? Yeah, it is. There is none above it. Now, the world is going to say, well, isn't that circular? Isn't that circular reasoning? There are so many responses you can say to that. One of my favorites is, what's wrong with circular reasoning? <laughs> because what's their authority to say circular reasoning is bad, right? Um, but we all have starting points in our lives. So the non-believer's starting point is his own mind. He's going to look out into the world and make judgments based on his own thoughts and desires and will. As a Christian, what, what happens when we're transferred from darkness into light is our starting point must become God and God's word. So we turn to what God has revealed about himself first, and that's our starting point. And all starting points are circular. So you can ask the non-believer who says, well, isn't starting with the Bible to see what the Bible says about itself, isn't that all circular? Well, isn't you, isn't the idea that you start with your own reasoning as the foundation for your own reasoning, isn't that circular? If you ask them, how do you know that your reasoning is true? How do you know that your judgments are sure? Well, because I know it, because a bunch of us got together and decided that we all know it. Well, isn't that circular? <laughs> all starting points are circular. We want our circle to be a holy circle, God's circle. And we launch from there. Okay? Scripture speaks of itself as being directly from God and consequently authoritative. If Scripture comes from the mouth of God, then it has full authority. Very important. Any thoughts or questions before we start looking at a couple passages? Well, I'm just curious that people that come up with all kinds of versions of Christianity... Uh, like to downplay the Bible, I keep saying that. But really, the Bible is the only way we know, even know about Christ. Apart from the Bible, we would not know about Christ. Yes, right. Absolutely. We would have a faint idea that he existed in history, much like Buddha. But the Bible that God has revealed and preserved for us, through that we have the Gospels. Very detailed account of Christ's life. What scriptures am I going to say? I gave you the books, right? 2 Timothy, 2 Peter. Where are we going? You guys know? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Okay? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. 
Critical passages. Memorize these references. You don't have to memorize the whole passage, but memorize where they are. So that way when you get into a conversation about Scripture, you know where to turn. And you can say, this is what Scripture says concerning itself. And uh, it's, it comes up more often than you might know in theological dialogue. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's have someone read that for us, those two verses. Who's got it? Rex, go ahead. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. So the Greek word is theonousos. And it, it sounds funny. It's the only occasion that that, of that word in the New Testament. But it's basically from the Greek words for God, which is the word theos. And then breathe, which again comes from that word that we looked at from um, uh, pneumatology, pneuma. So you've got theos, which is God. And then you've got pneuma, breathed. God breathe. That doesn't that just sum up perfectly what we believe Scripture is? Amen. From the very being of God out of Him, flowing from Him to us, God breathe. And let's see what it says again. Keep look down at the text, 2 Timothy 3. What are the things that it lists off that it's profitable for? Teaching. Teaching. What is reproof anyway? That's a funny word. Okay. Well, what's that next word then? Correction. Isn't that telling someone they're wrong? That means they're headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> Reproof is more like a warning, isn't it? And correction is more like bringing back, making straight. And what's that last one? In verse 16, the fourth quality? Training in righteousness. So that, and I've told you before, and I'll say it till I die, when you see so that in Scripture, you highlight it, you mark it, you put parentheses around it, whatever you do, because that tells you the purpose. Why does God give us Scripture that's good for these things? It's with the end in view, the end that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, may be complete, may be mature. Those are other ways of translating that. That the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Can you see how that's a critical passage on all this? Okay. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21. A lot of the same themes as in Second Timothy, but there are other concepts here too. Second Peter 1 19 through 21. Who would read that passage for us? 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Mr. Bowman. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All right, so what new elements do we have in this passage that we didn't necessarily see in 2 Timothy 3? 
All right, so we have the God-breathed word found in 2 Timothy 3. Paul liked to make up words, so that word's unique to Paul. Gets the idea across. And then Peter comes along, and he's emphasizing more of the man aspect. What role did man play? And the first thing that we see is what Jerry just said, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So the negative uh, aspect is no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Man did not conjure Scripture. And that gets really interesting uh, as we start to talk about man's personality. Go ahead, Ed. Especially here, we have religions around us to dictate yes. what the Scripture is supposed to say. Right. Yes. And we see here that that's not man's place, is it? Okay. But let's go to the positive aspect, the last part of verse 21. What positive role did man play? Yeah. And it's passive still. It's not a positive active. It's a positive passive. He's moved along. Make God move him along. God didn't give him an idea, and then he went and did it. But the whole process, as we see here, is man being moved passively by the Holy Spirit. The result of that is they're speaking from God. God is the one doing the speaking because he's the one doing the moving. He's the active one in this whole process. Other thoughts or questions on these two passages? Puts the Trinity in perspective. Yeah, we see specifically here the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one involved in the inspiration of Scripture. And then we see, in conjunction with that, in 1 Corinthians 2, the Holy Spirit is the one who illumines Scripture. He's the author. So he can illumine our minds. Okay. He says that it's uh, more sure than experiences. Yes. Yes, what do we have that's more sure than the written word, written prophecy? According to this passage, nothing. We've got the written word of God. Okay. Now let's talk about this whole being moved by the Holy Spirit aspect after we hear from Mr. Bowman. Go ahead. Sorry, I just popped in my head there when you say nothing is more sure, not terra firma or anything else. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass. Yes. But his words won't. Very good. Yes. Many things will pass away. All things, in fact, in this on this celestial ball. Well, terrestrial ball, not celestial. It'll eventually be a celestial ball. <laughs> Depending on what uh, view you take of the new heavens and new earth, uh, this currently terrestrial ball, um, everything's going to burn, except for human souls and the Word of God. Everything will pass away, except for those things. Well, let's talk about um, this being moved along by the Holy Spirit, and I have on your sheet there for you to fill in, plenary, verbal plenary inspiration. That's what we believe about the inspiration of Scripture, that it was verbal plenary. Now, these words both have to be defined. You're familiar with verbal. You're probably not familiar with plenary. But let's look at these two, uh, give some definition to them, and uh, go from there. So verbal here means words. It doesn't mean verbalize necessarily. It doesn't mean audio necessarily. But it's just meaning words. Words is what verbal primarily means. And plenary, anybody know what that word means? Plenary. Thoughts, ideas. No. Nope. Nope. 
plane area. What do you mean Ukrainian's plane? <laughs> Airplane area. No. Uh, plane area means all. That's my next All. So when we talk about verbal planary inspiration, we mean that how many of the words were inspired? There you go. All words were inspired by God. All words of the Bible were inspired by God. God maintained holy control over the words in accordance with the writer's individual personalities. And this is just so fascinating to me. Uh, when you are a first semester Greek student in seminary, which one of these days maybe you guys will be, wouldn't that be great? They don't, uh, the teacher doesn't send you to the book of Hebrews. In fact, the book of Hebrews gets its own class. The teacher sends you to John to study John because John wrote in the simplest Greek, the most elementary Greek. So if you're a first semester Greek student, you're better off going to John to understand, to see the Greek for yourself, to parse it, to break it all down. than you are going to Luke or Hebrews or something like that. Why is that? Because didn't we just say God is the one who inspired all the words? Jerry? It's okay. You've earned the right. <laughs> we don't start with encyclopedias when we start school. We start with A C's. Yes. We start with the simplest words. It's a process of learning. Is We don't start with a complex of things with math. But why are John's writings A, B, C's, and Hebrews not when the same Holy Spirit inspired both of them? Someone else started. <laughs> Unless he uses the personalities. Okay. Just a simple fisherman. said John was a more simple man than so many regards. Where Paul, who did the writings, was very much educated. He was very advanced, yeah. In that sensible words, uh, Hebrews was the advancement because he was speaking to a certain audience, the Jews. And that audience was Pharisees and Sadducees also. So he directed that more into a, a more elevated level, probably because of who he was hmm. and his nature of why he was writing it. Okay. John wrote to everybody. John was a specific class, it was a broad spectrum. Okay. Logan? You might be able to switch out personalities with gifts, individual gifts. Um, okay. Every person has their own gifts. I can't blame you for your gifts because I can't quite see them the way you see them. Mm. You know, uh, or, or think the way you think. Yeah, I think we see that in Paul, in John, in, you know, mm -hmm. James. Each one writes a little bit. Mm -hmm. But they're all pointing to the same thing. They all write the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how much control did God have? Total. Total. Except not over their personalities? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, good. 
Yes. Very, very patient, very, very yes. simple. And we and know in, in scripture, as, as you study to, to our uh, sermons and stuff like that, you know, you can't talk like Robbie Zacharias to the entire congregation. Mm -hmm. No, we all understand what you're talking about. Yeah. But he does on a fifth grade level, so to speak, mentality wise, people can understand. Yeah. Yeah, whereas Paul, of course, studied under Gamaliel and was yeah. a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay. Well, as we as you wrestle with that thought and kind of think, just think about that, hold it in your mind a little bit. Can you think of a better illustration for how God sovereignly achieves his purposes in a fallen world? I, this is one of the illustrations I go back to all the time when we talk about God's sovereignty and someone asks me, um, so do you, do you have choice over what socks you wore this morning, what socks you put on? <laughs> you know, when we're asking these kind of crazy questions. Um, the doctrine of inspiration, thinking about how God superintended that whole process. That just puts my mind in a pretzel, but it gives me great comfort knowing if the end product of Scripture was certainly God's words. This was breathed out by God. Yet, the people didn't turn into robots, right? Otherwise, it would have sounded the same. That we wouldn't have had the difference in personalities or the difference in writing styles or whatever. If God was able to achieve both of those ends... That gives me great comfort. Doesn't it give you great comfort that God, the end product was exactly what God wanted, but he didn't turn people into robots. Isn't that incredible? Look at Luke, the physician, write and talk like that, and investigate and search things mm -hmm. out like that. John, you know, yeah. They really need to speak mm -hmm. Amazing stuff. Mr. Carroll. Even in respect to John, look how John changes in his other epistles. Mm -hmm. Third and Revelation. Yeah, Re Revelation certainly different. Yes. Yeah. So he starts out with something very simplistic. Yeah, the gospel, easy peasy. But he changes John. Revelation. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. But it's still the same John. It's amazing. Well, point: man made in God's image. When I'm talking to my I tell her something that's absolutely true, but I probably wouldn't use the same words when I'm talking to my knucklehead 40-year-old son. <laughs> first and foremost, not calling the three-year-old a knucklehead. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay, good. Uh, more thoughts on inspiration. There are incorrect views of inspiration that carry huge ramifications for how we understand the Bible. And let me just give you a few of them. I say a few, but do you know how many a few is according to the Bible? This is a really dumb trivia question, but let's see if you can get it. A few. In a New Testament letter, it says a few somewhere. It's a letter written by Peter. More than three. <laughs> it was more than three. He said a few were saved in the ark. Eight. So, I'm going to give you three, not a few. Uh, all that to say. <clears throat> There's the dictation theory, the con conceptual theory, and the natural theory of Scripture. Now, um, just real briefly, let me touch on those. The dictation theory is more of that, uh, the, kind of like the robot view, where they say, um, God, God turn, the, turn their brain off. 
when they wrote scripture. They went into robot mode when they sat down to write scripture. And it was just doot, 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 doot. Every single word was just fed to them without any of their experiences, without any of their context, without any of their personality necessarily playing a role. That's the dictation theory. The conceptual theory is the other side of that spectrum. Well, yeah, we're, we're, we've gone from uh, really, I don't want to say conservative because we have good connotations for conservative. We, uh, we, we're going from one extreme, natural's the other, but this one's close to the other extreme. Concept theory is God just put a concept in their head. So God put in their head uh, when Paul was writing to, um, when he was writing the letter Philemon, God put the thought in his head, you need to write this letter, and these are a couple themes that I want you to incorporate in that letter, all up to you. Then he went and wrote it. That's the concept theory. Now the natural theory is the most liberal, perhaps the most common in America today, meaning these are just letters written by men. It's the natural theory. These are just nat natural letters, natural human interaction, and over time, it has become known as the Word of God. That's the natural theory. So um, those are three common incorrect views that we want to avoid. Okay? As, as is most common in Christian doctrine, the best view is the one that's hardest to understand for us. <laughs> These three are easier to understand, aren't they, than... Inspiration, meaning that somehow all the words are God's words alone and all of their personality, all of their background, all of their context is there too. That's harder to understand. So let's not simplify things for the sake of our own uh, benefit or laziness. Very good. A final thought here from John Frame. David writes in a very different way from Moses. Luke's writing is very different in style from that of John or of Paul. But as we have seen, all of these very different writers were chosen by God to convey his personal word to the world. Okay. Any thoughts, questions, inspirations? Okay. So, I'm your neighbor. Whoever your neighbor is, pretend that I'm him or her. Tell me how the Bible got from God's mind to us today. Who's going to give that a, a shot? I'm your neighbor. I know nothing. <laughs> Go for it. Who's going to give it a shot? Travis? Okay. <laughs> I've elected you. Okay. So... Do we have any role playing or nothing? Are you going to ask me questions or what? No, just give me one shot. All right, here we go. So, the, so uh, God, God wanted us to, to know His will, know His plan for our lives. And so He gave us prophets that uh, taught His people, His creation, and uh, He had them write down their uh, His thoughts, his, his will again. Uh, and He you had them write that uh, on scripts and things like this to, to us, uh, to know so we know how to live, how to, how to uh, glorify him. And he did that by involving them with his Holy Spirit. So as they're writing, it is God's words that they're writing in their... Uh, their own voice. Style. Their voice, there we go. And... Uh, 
After that, uh, men dictated and copied those letters and writings over and over to all uh, to we get the printing press and all that. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to go that. We haven't okay. gotten there yet. But good. Good. Okay. And anybody else want to take a swing at it? Or critique Travis to his face. Can I get one more? It's important that we understand that how to say this in layman's terms, how to explain this to our neighbor. Go ahead. Even in God's word, who gives its own connotation of how God did it, what he did in developing the word of God written by man is in Timothy 3.16. All scripture was inspired by the word of God. And he used it for the very essence of purposes for what it was to be used for. And he used man to do this, even in the in Moses. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't just think them up. He gave them to him. And he wrote among the stones. So with that said, God is the person, or I shouldn't say person because he's not a person. <laughs> he is God, the sovereign God that inspired him. And breathed the word into him through the Holy Spirit to write them down. And for future of all Changed. Mm. all the dots, the periods, the dashes, mm. all world. Good. Very good. Now, of course, anybody you explain this to, I like using uh, the Ten Commandments as an illustration. That was good. Anybody you explain this to who's not a believer is going to want to jump to, well, how do we know that what we have today in our hands is the same thing that he gave Paul or whatever? And we're going to get to that um, in just a couple lessons, okay? Uh, but as far as defining inspiration, we start with God's mind to us. That's how it happened. Okay, good job. Good. All right, let's talk about inerrancy. The other word, inerrancy. Inerrancy is the state of being without error. Who would have seen that coming? Without error is what inerrancy means. Now, there's a second word, infallibility, which is related but not the same. Infallibility, infallibility is an attribute of perfection and incapability to err. So when we say the scripture is inerrant, what we're saying is it's without any faults whatsoever. It has no mistakes. There's nothing that's wrong in it. It's perfect. It exists as a perfect thing. That's why we call scripture holy. The front of your Bible says the holy Bible. It's inerrant. It's without error. Now, if we say the Bible is infallible... What we're saying is that it's incapable of erring. There's nowhere that you could turn for counsel in Scripture and then come, come away with bad counseling. But it's infallible. It's unable to do wrong. It's unable to teach wrong. So because it's perfect, it only teaches or counsels that which is perfect. It's infallible. It's inerrant and it's infallible. Now that's not to say that... A man is unable to twist it to teach wrong things, because that certainly happens a lot, doesn't it? Someone can take any verse of the Bible and then produce fallible teaching through and through. But the Bible itself is not the cause for that. Man's influence is the cause for that. So if there's a false teacher who's using all sorts of Bible to teach something, 
and someone says, well, how can he be wrong? He's using the Bible. Have you heard that from people before? People that you know who are listening to someone wrong? Well, he's using so much. He's using these verses. It has to be right. Just because the Bible is being used, that doesn't mean it's being used infallibly. Just because the Bible's infallible, that doesn't mean the teaching's infallible. Fallen men do what fallen men do. And there are some twisted, perverted minds out there in a lost and dying world that will take that which is perfect and teach something that goes against the very word they're using. Right? So you've got to have that distinction in your mind. If there's a false teaching out of the Bible, it's not the Bible's fault. It's the teacher's fault. Okay? Yes? I have to tell you one thing. My, I remember my dad told me, he said, figures don't lie, a liar's figure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. It's a good one. That's worthy of hanging up in your office. Well, I guess you don't have an office anymore. You've been, you've been put in the corner. <laughs> For something infallible to appear errant, there must be misunderstanding or deceit at play. Those are the only two options. Now, um, so like I was using the false teacher illustration, it's also possible that someone just doesn't understand Scripture. That there's an innocence and motive. Uh, for instance, a new believer um, might be teaching a doctrine totally wrong from Scripture because that person hasn't been taught that yet. And next thing you know, that person's in a conversation with his neighbor, and he's saying some weird stuff like, yeah, God actually has wings. The Bible says it. God has wings. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, so, now, if there's deceit going on, that's one thing. If it's misunderstanding, that's another. And those are easy to fix. When it's mis just purely innocent misunderstanding, that's an easy fix. You can just say to that person, well, look, it's a figure of speech. It's metaphor that's being used in Scripture. And here's some other examples of that. Here's how we know when metaphor is being used. And that person says, thank you for correcting me, and goes back to his neighbor and corrects his neighbor, and everybody's happy. But what we find so often, unfortunately, is deceit. Okay, uh, on inerrancy, Wayne Gruden, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It might make you bristle a little bit when he uses the phrase in the original manuscripts. Well, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks um, and how we understand all of that. But right now, let's just focus on the word inerrancy. It means that Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. There's no fact that exists that contradicts Scripture. So when someone says the earth is blah, 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 at least blah, 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 years old, as a fact, if that's contrary to Scripture, then that's not a fact. Then that's just an opinion. If someone says, well, we evolved from the blah, blah, blah species. I keep saying blah, 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 because I don't know words. Uh, the such and such species. It's been a long time since I've gone through this. Um, and that got us to where we are today and that's contrary to the Word of God, then that's not a fact. That's mere opinion. And you look like a, a caveman who just dragged yourself in, you know, from the wilderness, and, no, the Bible says this, this must be right. That's how they see you. doesn't matter how they see you. If the Bible is the Word of God, it contains nothing that goes against fact. And anything that is claiming to be a fact that goes against Scripture is wrong. 
And that's where you have to start as a Christian. Now, that's not to say, now cut yourself off there and don't study science. Don't study math. Don't study any philosophy. Go study those things. Be knowledgeable of those things. But always take the inerrancy of Scripture with you. The problem that so many people run into, especially young people who never truly were saved, that get sent off to college, they go and they start hearing all sorts of confident professors and teachers and whatnot, and this has been going on for decades, and they hear these things and they say, oh, well, those scientists now must be the paradigm for me to look at scripture. The scientists have the authority. The scientists are inerrant. And they say this, 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 and now I look at scripture in light of that, and now scripture must mean something other than what it says. That's not the way it works. I don't care how many people make fun of you. I don't care how many people mock you. If you lose the inerrancy of scripture, you lose all Christianity. If you just lose Genesis 1 through 12, you lose all Christianity. Gotta hold those things tight. Sorry, started preaching. Thoughts or questions? Okay. All right. Inerrancy. God is our God is Scripture's sole source. Okay. The source of Scripture is God. Remember, man is the instrument. Man is not a source. The source is God, and man is the instrument. That's our doctrine of inspiration. And God is inerrant in all of His ways. If He was errant in any way, He would cease to be God. Right? God is God because he's the only perfect being. That's what makes him God. God is perfect. God is Scripture's sole source. Therefore, Scripture is perfect. See how it's logical? Um, If God is the one who communicated to us, and he was the sole source of that communication, then that communication must be like him perfect. A perfect being is incapable of making an imperfect being. All right? All that God creates is very good, right? Good, very good. And it's the scriptures included. How much time? Ten minutes. How many slides? Three more. We're good. Okay. All right? Inerrancy. There is a biblical basis for inerrancy. Let me give you some text. You can write these down and then we'll look them up. Psalm 119, John 17, and Hebrews 4. Let's do this. Once you write those down, turn to, turn to Psalm 119. We'll do the tour of Psalm 119 together. And I'll read for you John 17 and Hebrews 4. Okay? Psalm 119, we'll start with verse 89. Four verses to be read. Let's, uh, let's just like have four different people read these four verses. Who's got verse 89? Quick, quick, quick. Got it. Oh, well, you didn't raise your hand. So <laughs> we're going to give that to Sandra. You can take uh, verse 142. Who's going to take 151? Rex, very good. You see, you say, Mr. Carter or Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter. Um, And 160, Jerry Bowman. Okay, so let's listen for inerrancy, the state of being without error. Psalm 119, 89. 
forever, O Lord. Your word is settled in heaven. Wow. Forever it is settled. Does it have the potential to become erroneous? No, it does not. It's an eternal state of being perfect, God's communication. 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is true. Okay. God is righteous, and what he has revealed to us is true, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Verse 151. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. How many of them? All. Oh, okay. And 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Wow. Wow. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said of his disciples, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You think Jesus knew Psalm 119? Did he have a foundation for what he said there? He absolutely did. In Hebrews 4.12, There's an illustration used in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. And what does it do? What does the Word of God do? Yes, it pierces. It's thrust in. And what is it even able to discern? The divisions? Soul and spirit. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is a perfect judge over your immaterial being, over all of your thoughts and intentions, over your soul. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Wait for him again. The Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. That's a good quote. The Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. Okay? Thoughts on those passages, that quote? Good. We must remember that God always uses means to accomplish His purposes in the world. That's another drum I like to beat. God always uses means to accomplish His ends. Important to remember that because God can and does accomplish holiness through unholy instruments. Our salvation and subsequent sanctification is a great example. And we're going to talk about an argument here to close out the class, an argument you might get from somebody. Uh, But first, understand this that God can use imperfect vessels to create a perfect product. We're talking about man being an instrument in the holy God's hands. Their personalities are in there. Their context is in there. Their knowledge is in there. And the result is still a perfect holy text. God can do that. Just like God calls you a new creation. And you are then able to live a life bearing fruit of the Spirit. How are you able to do that? You thought about that? How on earth are you able to produce any good work in you that God would call good? It's because God can use and does use unholy instruments to create something holy. God always uses means. Isn't that remarkable? So you get this argument about the book from heaven. Um, 
If God was to give us, because you'll go about talking uh, with somebody and say, the word of God is inerrant, it's infallible, you're going to use these words and feel so smart and look so good doing it. And then that person's going to say, but wait, if God's using guys like me and you, we would only mess it up. We would tarnish the word of God. We would tarnish scripture. And so if he wanted us to have his perfect word, he'd have to drop it from heaven. He'd have to write it up there and just send it down. Kind of like we use the illustration of the Ten Commandments, how he wrote the finger of God. He would have to do that for all of Scripture and give it to us. And at first blush, that seems quite reasonable. We are unholy. Don't we tend to mess things up when we touch it? (laughs) We'd have to affirm that, wouldn't we? We've messed up relationships in our lives. We've messed up all these good things that God has created. We've messed things up. So how is it that... God could do this. Well, let me give you just some thoughts to close out here. The first thing, God always perfectly glorifies himself. Now, the reason that's first is because what what that person's doing, wittingly or unwittingly, is saying God should have chosen a better means to glorify himself. God should have chosen a better means. A better means for God to bring glory to his name would have been to drop a book from heaven. Well, what God has done, you don't critique. If God has done it, you don't rebuke God. But instead, you recognize that whatever God chooses to do, no matter what your opinion on the matter, whatever God chooses to do, he does perfectly. And that's where you start. You have to start. Okay. But then you can ask that person this question. If a book dropped down from heaven, how would you know that it dropped down from heaven? What's the answer that that person would have to give? Somebody told me. It's signed by God. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, yeah. We ended up in the hill somewhere. Yeah, we went, we went and found it. It would have to be our own reasoning, right? Because, well, we read it, and it has to be from God. Or I used my mind and my eyes. I read the words, and it said it was from God. So I've concluded that it must be from God. That's the only way. Or the groupthink thing. We, we've all come together and we all say that it's from God. Either that or the angel showed us where it was hidden. Yeah, right. But even then, how do you know God hid it there? He said, gives us supernatural So we, we can't. So in that situation, isn't God still using you? If he dropped a book from heaven, doesn't God still has to have to use man to determine it's the word of God and to teach it as the word of God? You can't escape the fact that God uses his image bearers to accomplish his will in the world. You can't escape it. There you go. There's my argument against that. Okay. I think that might be the last slide. It is the last slide. So any thoughts, concluding thoughts or questions? Perfectly timed. Great. Okay. Inspiration and inerrancy. Go ahead. What in First Peter, JSB says, moved, I think, King James or somebody else uses, carried along. Yes. Certainly means that. We aren't in control of the result. We're being pushed or carried. 
Yeah, so the word here is pharaoh. It's a funny word. It doesn't mean pharaoh like in Egypt. It means to bear or to carry, to endure. Let's see, to bring, to bring forward. Those are some synonyms for it. To produce, to bear, to endure. There you go. Okay, next week, we're going to start off by looking at sufficiency. And this is the logical conclusion. If Scripture is from God, inspiration, if Scripture is perfect because it's from God, inerrancy, shouldn't we have to conclude then at that point that it's then sufficient for us? And that we need no other argument? We need no other plea? But because of the scriptures, we know that Jesus died and that he died for you and me. So sufficiency of scripture, and that's critical. We're going to talk a little bit about the counseling world when we talk about sufficiency. Hot debate over the sufficiency of scripture and counseling, because if we're saying we need no other authoritative book to teach us about life and godliness, then what do we do in a counseling situation when someone really wants to get help? From secular psychiatry, psychology, psychiatry, both. How do we how do we figure that out? Well, we're going to crack open that conversation next week. Okay, Mr. Carroll, would you pray for us?